You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by ExpressVPN. Protect your online privacy today. Use our exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash missionlog, and you can get an extra three months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash missionlog. This episode of Mission Log is also sponsored by Helix Sleep. Take the Helix Sleep quiz and get up to $200 off your new mattress and two free pillows at helixsleep.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 409, Time's Orphan. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week we go back in time, as it were, to revisit an episode of Star Trek and then live with it for a little while. Then we'll see if we're the same afterwards or if we're feral animals who can't shake it off or what we've just been through. This week, Time's Orphan, the one where there's a time portal and someone goes through it and then someone else has to make it right. Nope, nope, not that one. Uh, not not that one either. This one. Well, we'll jump through, well, this portal. Well, no, no th- that portal. No, this portal. Mm, yeah. This portal in a moment, and we'll have trivia just as soon as I tell you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek, and that's why we want to hear from you. Use Mission Log Pod to give us a like and a share on Facebook and Twitter. Then follow and rate us at Apple Podcasts to help others find the show. You can call us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by dialing 323-522-5641. Send us an email at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. And now, with his DNA sequence finally intact from all of his research, here's John Champion with this week's trivia. I wouldn't be so sure about that, Norman, but uh, but we'll see. Today's episode, Time's Orphan. We have a story by Joe Minoski, and as always, we need to talk about where the story actually comes from. Yes, Joe had an idea way back in his TNG days about a time portal making a kid disappear. The child back then was Alexander, who Joe was ready to be done with, <laughs> and Even though we got a future Alexander later, it wasn't Joe's script in which the adult Alexander would have carried on and we would have had never seen child Alexander again. So it was Renee Echeverria who re-pitched Joe's idea to make it about Molly. The writing assignment was handled to Bradley Thompson and David Weddle, who would take care of the teleplay, but their approach was something different, a little more contemporary teen drama in which Molly had grown up with some foster parents in an agrarian society, and she liked them quite a bit and, and then kind of grew to resent the O'Briens. It was Iris Stephen Bear who stepped in and recommended that they make Time Portal Molly feral, and a much different problem to deal with. 
The episode was directed by Alan Croker, and we just talked about Alan's most recent contribution to DS9, the episode His Way. He's got four more to go on DS9, then long runs on both Voyager and Enterprise. As you know, I like to point out location shooting, and in this episode, we have a really lovely spot in Malibu Creek State Park that's just due northwest of what most people know as Malibu Beach, And conveniently, it's also really close to the Paramount Ranch, which is in the same Santa Monica Mountains, where they film MASH and just a ton of other shows and movies. It is a real-life location, and just like you can get some beautiful scenery out of your film there, you also have to deal with wildlife. Everyone in the crew remembers filming the picnic scene when there was a murmur among the crew, and you do not talk while filming. After they cut, the director motioned for the actors to come over to the camera setup, and then they turned to see a rattlesnake making its way to where they were just doing their scene and a park ranger shooing it away. Let's talk about guest stars. We get to welcome back Rosalind Chow as Keiko O'Brien. Keiko is obviously part of the family here, but keep in mind that we haven't actually seen her since the middle of season five in The Begotten when Kira gave birth to the O'Brien's baby, Yoshi. And same goes for Hannah Hatai, who we welcome back as Molly O'Brien, well, as the younger Molly. We also meet him. I'm sorry. Yeah? I'm sorry, John, not to to interrupt you, but I do. There's something important that I have to bring up with Rosalind Chow coming back. Yeah, yeah. In this episode, we have... No opportunity to bring back the Wheel of Excuses. Oh, it was a lost opportunity. But, but Norman, I feel like that wheel will be back. We just got to hold on a little bit longer. I'm sure that it will be back. Now, in this episode, we also meet the older, different version of Molly. That one is played by Michelle Krusik. So Michelle has had a very interesting life and career. She was born in Taiwan, but raised by adoptive parents in the U.S. One of her earliest roles was a bit part in the Oliver Stone film, Nixon. She had met Stone while she was a student and actually fell asleep in a class in which he was the guest lecturer. TV and film roles followed with DS9 pretty early in her career, A recurring role on the sitcom Titus preceded more guest and recurring roles on shows like Hawaii Five-O, General Hospital, and Dirty Sexy Money. At present, she is just one of eight directors in the AFI Directing Workshop for Women. From the makers of Children of Time, it's Time's Orphan. Wow, when I put it that way, it's kind of disturbing. Prologue. It's a peaceful morning in the O'Brien suite. Miles and Keiko are finally back together again and are enjoying a blissful morning until a very bright-eyed and bushy-tailed Molly rouses them with her excitement about today's picnic on Galana, a planet in the Bajoran system. The family gets ready to depart, but sadly, poor Chester has to stay behind. Later on the lush and green planet surface, the O'Briens are enjoying the peace and solitude of their surroundings as Molly tells her baby brother Yoshi that the last time she saw her mommy, he was still in her belly. 
While Keiko is brushing Molly's hair, Miles tells Keiko that he promises that he will never send them away again, and if the Dominion War heats up, he will put in for a transfer to keep them away from the front lines. As Molly explores the planet, Miles and Keiko turn their attention to Kiryoshi until they both hear a scream from a nearby cavern. It's Molly, and she's accidentally fallen into a deep chasm with a strange energy pool emanating from the bottom. As Miles tries to lift Molly out, she loses her grip, falls into the energy pool, and disappears. Act 1 Inside the cave, a fully detailed science and engineering team led by the Chief, Major Kira, and Dax have analyzed the technology that produced the strange energy pool where Molly fell into. Dax explains that it's an ancient temporal portal that was left behind from whatever civilization that used to occupy Galana. According to Chronoton readings, the portal may have sent Molly back in time some 300 years. With a few technical setbacks, the chief lets the team try to restore power to the portal's doorway while he tries to calm down a very frightened Keiko and Kiryoshi. Keiko insists on staying, but lets Kira take Yoji to the Defiant, where he would be safer. Back on the Defiant, Kira and Yoji rediscover one another as she admits to wanting a child of her own someday. Odo, unable to reconcile those feelings with Kira at the moment, redirects their attention to the situation at hand. The Bajoran Archaeological Institute has sent him information on Galana. It seems that Bajoran settlers only inhabited the planet less than 100 years ago, meaning that whenever Molly arrived in those 300 years in the past, she would have been all alone on Galana. Outside the cave, Miles tries to comfort a very distraught Keiko and is pleasantly interrupted by Dax, who is ready to engage the portal. As the ancient temporal device is activated, Dax locks onto Molly's DNA sequence and transports her through time and, surprising to all, materializes in front of them. However, Molly appears not as she was when she disappeared originally. She is now some ten years older, feral in appearance, and in behavior as she bites her own father and tries to escape, but not before Dr. Bashir sedates her with a hypospray as her parents look on in shock. Act 2 In the Defiant sickbay, Dr. Bashir confirms that the feral teenage girl from the planet's surface is in fact Molly, based on his DNA scan comparisons, even though she is now 10 years older. Miles wants to try the temporal experiment again to try and retrieve their younger Molly, but Keiko impassionately states that this is their Molly, and they don't have the right to take away the 10 years that she's experienced. Julian cautions them to tread lightly with Molly, as any emotional trauma could be damaging to her reassimilation adjustment period. As are all in agreement, a cargo bay on Deep Space Nine will be converted into a safe space for Molly and her parents to help them adjust to the unknowns of their new lives together. Back on Deep Space Nine, War finds Dax in their quarters, spending time with baby Kira Yoshi. She is watching him while the O'Briens help Molly adjust to her new surroundings in the cargo bay. He knows that Jadzia is supposed to monitor a comet that is passing through the Denoris Belt, which is an opportunity she's been waiting eagerly for for weeks. So Worf fathers up and promises to watch Yoshi while Dax attends to her duties, reminding her all the while that he too was once a father. As she reminds him that she too was once a parent of nine children and knows how bumpy the road will be for Worf, regardless of his good intentions. But Worf, as is wont to do, is determined to prove his paternal quality. Meanwhile, in the cargo bay, 
Molly wakes from her sedation and finds herself in a somewhat familiar surrounding, as it has been set up to remind her of Galana. When the O'Briens arrive, she immediately climbs a tree to create a safe distance from them, but they came prepared, with fruit to share, and most importantly, Keiko brought Lupi, Molly's favorite doll. It hopes that it would spark some memory of Molly's past. And it does, as she descends from the tree, grabs the doll from Keiko, and stares at it deeply. Act 3 Miles and Keiko continue trying to rehabilitate Molly, trying to engage her with very basic language skills and games. Using various colored balls and passing them back and forth to try and see if Molly would react to them, Molly hoards the balls protectively until on his very last attempt for her to throw one back to him, Miles intently asks please, a word that connects with Molly as she rolls the ball back to her father. Smiles abound as the family realizes that their first true connection has been made. Back in Worf's makeshift nursery, meaning his quarters, he's confounded as to why, despite all of his efforts checking off every tick box of proper fathering that he could think of, and all that Dax could think of, feeding, diaper changing, and singing until his throat was raw, why wasn't Yoshi falling asleep? He admits to an exhausted Jadzia who was lying in bed that he knows how important being a good father would be to their future children. Determined to succeed, Worf musters himself up to get back to work. Meanwhile, in the cargo bay, Molly is asleep in the tree, and Miles is trying to rest up on a nearby couch as Keiko arrives to spell him for a while so he can go back to work. However, when Molly observes Keiko brushing her hair, she cautiously approaches her mother, sits next to her, and nudges Keiko to do the same to her as if Molly remembers her mother doing so when she was a child. Catching up with Julian while walking down a corridor, Miles shows him a picture that Molly drew of their family. Julian cautions him not to push Molly too hard, too soon, but the chief assures Julian that Molly is doing just fine. As they arrive back in the chief quarters, they find Worf with a baby rattle in hand and sitting with Yoshi, teaching him gung gung gung, a Klingon lesson taught to babies to train them to become future warriors, to which he tells the chief how baby Yoshi acquitted himself well in these lessons. Ah, Worf, parroting done right? While Miles returns to the cargo bay, he finds Keiko in a panic, watching Molly fairly pace back and forth and in obvious distress. As soon as Keiko says that she has to leave to pick up Yoshi and take him home, Molly stops and repeats the word home in a way that the O'Briens realize that they have to escort Molly to their quarters, her home, before she was lost in the portal. However, shortly after they show Molly her former room, she becomes agitated and aggressive again until she picks up and stares at a picture of all of them on the grassy field of Galana, looking intently at her parents and saying, Molly, home. Later in Quark's holosuite, the O'Briens are back on Galana, at least the best holographic simulation of the planet. Molly is deliriously happy, running around the fields and doing cartwheels just as she did ten years ago before she disappeared. However, as history has proven time and again, there's always trouble in paradise, as Quark interrupts the O'Brien's simulation, telling the chief that he has to leave, because a pair of Klingon customers have arrived for their holosuite reservation and want it now. Frustrated with it all, the chief ends the program, and as the lush green fields, trees, sunlight, and fresh air all abruptly disappear right in front of Molly's eyes, she's flooded with terror, flees the holosuite, and fights her way out of Quark's trying to escape the horrors of her surrounding even attacking a Markalian customer with a broken bottle. 
And before she can do any more harm to herself or anyone else, Odo orders his deputy to stun Molly as she falls to the ground as her parents watch helplessly. Act 4. In Captain Sisko's office, Benjamin tells the chief that the Markalian is pressing charges against Molly and that she will be placed in a Federation special care center on Davos Prime for further evaluation. O'Brien pleads with his captain that this is a mistake, that she'll only recover properly with the help of her parents, but Sisko regretfully says that it's out of his hands. Meanwhile, in the brig, Molly is pacing back and forth in her holding cell and even begins throwing herself against the force field, trying to escape. Dr. Bashir says that her adrenaline level is so high that she could go into shock. Ordering the force field to be taken down, Miles tries to reason with Molly as she launches herself at him, forcing Julian to sedate her with a hyperspray yet again. He tells Miles and Keiko that he can't keep sedating her forever and that they have to try another way. Quark's holosuite can do for now, but sooner or later, she will be put on that transport to Davos Prime. Back in Worf's quarters, Dax finds him sitting down and looking despondent as Julian emerges from the back room and tells them both that Yoshi will be fine. It's just a bump on the heads. Kids, am I right? Worf admits that he was roughhousing with Yoshi a bit too much and in the midst of their playing, Yoshi ran into a table and hurt himself. Worf, again as he is once to do, blames himself to the nth degree and considers his paternal skills a failure. Not only to Yoshi, but to Dax and their future children, and most significantly admitting that he was a failure in raising Alexander. In the O'Brien's quarters, Miles is deep in thought, and Keiko, knowing Miles for as long as she has, also knows he's plotting something and forces him to confess, as Molly is her daughter too. Miles wants to steal a runabout, take Molly back to Galana, and... Let her go. Let her go home. Back through the portal and back to a world where she felt safe and happy for the last 10 years. He can't see any other way around their situation. And Keiko, wanting only happiness for Molly, agrees. After subduing the deputy guarding Molly's holding cell, the chief grabs Molly and makes haste to make Keiko at the airlock where they are packed and ready to go. Suddenly, a security guard intercepts them and calls for Odo. Act 5. As Odo arrives on the scene, he orders his deputy to check on Pinar, the guard who Miles sedated, seeing if he wants to press charges against the chief. Once the deputy is gone, Miles pleads desperately at Odo to let them go. However, Odo folds his arms defiantly and tells Miles how disappointed he is in him. Disappointed that someone as capable as the chief would be at a prison break would so easily be apprehended. And, just as the chief is ready to resign himself into Odo's custody, the constable opens the airlock and orders them to be on their way. Making it safely to the surface of Galana and back in the cavern, Keiko makes sure that Molly has everything she needs to survive her trip back through the portal. A knife. A blanket. And most importantly, Loopy. While the chief powers up the temporal portal. Fighting through the agony of letting their daughter go, the chief and Keiko embrace Molly one last time as she looks back at them, saying, Molly loves you. As she disappears through the energy doorway, the chief grabs his phaser to destroy it so that no one would be able to find her ever again, especially Federation authorities. However, once the older Molly appears on the other side, she discovers a huddled young girl crying in the shadows. It's young Molly. She is alive and exactly the same age as when she first disappeared. Elder Molly points towards the portal, 
telling her younger self that mommy and daddy are there. She hands her younger self Loopy and nudges her towards the portal doorway. And once younger Molly walks through, the elder version of herself disappears. The chief, about to fire on the portal structure, is awestruck as little Molly appears and he and Keiko are overwhelmed with joy and relief that their Molly has returned. Back in Worf's quarters, Dax, who just dropped off Yoshi at the O'Briens to unite with his not-so-older sister, finds a still somewhat despondent Worf beating himself up about what happened to Yoshi. The O'Briens invited the two of them to dinner as thanks for taking care of Yoshi during this whole incident. But Dax made their excuses, knowing that Worf would be reluctant to go in the current state that he's in. However, just as they put all that aside, Dax asks Worf what gung 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 means, because Yoshi kept saying that and playing with his rattle all the while while she was taking care of him. Dax assuages Worf's doubts about parenthood, and they both agree on canceling their previous plans in the Hollow Suite to have dinner with the newly reunited O'Brien family. Later, in the O'Brien's quarters, as Molly is drawing a picture of their family, the chief informs Keiko that the original temporal calibration fluctuated just enough for both Molly's to have existed simultaneously. As the younger one returned, the elder one ceased to be. Keiko wonders if the older version realized that she was saving the younger version of herself. Molly finished with her drawing and shows Mommy and Daddy what her idea of family looked like. It looked much in the same style that her older self made for Miles earlier, the one that came from the mind of his daughter, aged 10 years older. The end. Nice job, Norman. There's a lot of plot going on there with our uh, story of little Molly, bigger Molly, and how to get that whole thing reconciled. But right out, right out of the gate, just right at the start, there's some stuff that I, I need to address. I'm really glad that sunscreen is still a thing in the 24th century. We're still concerned about those damaging rays from the sun. I mean, look, as somebody who needs it deeply all the time, um, I would hope that in the 24th century, we just have a hypo that will protect you. But but whatever, can't have everything. If we can make it the 24th century, we still need sunscreen. I'm okay with that. Yeah. Um, I will also say, Chester, I'm so glad Yay. to see him back. We introduce an idea episodes ago, and then we get to see that element play out again. So there he is. Well, I, I was glad to see him back. You were glad to see him back. Why so much hate from Keiko? I, I, okay. I I have a little I, – I've got a comment that I'll save for the next segment. Yes. I was bummed. Yes. Right? Yes. You know, exactly. Chester deserves fresh air. Uh, yeah. Right? Come on. He's a cat. So if he fell into the portal, then he came back 10 years older. <laughs> he would have been like mellow Chester. Right? right. And then Keiko would have been okay with that. Exactly. So the, the line, I was dying, right, when this happened. It's the very beginning of the episode. Keiko says when they were in bed, yeah. she pats him on the stomach. What have you been eating since we've been gone? And, and the, you know, the chief says, oh, you're the usual. Yeah. And I just, I, I can't help but say this. What, like the usual meaning fun and freedom? <laughs> Hell! Yes, yes. That is 100% accurate. No lies detected. I like that they put that, that icon, that bracelet on Molly so that, because, I mean, how many other Asian daughters are Deep Space Nine where you would obviously mistake her for the 10-year-old version of her? Right, Totally. Without totally. the bracelet. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that was important. I'm glad that we had that. Yeah, I'm just yeah. saying that's mm -hmm. a nice attention to detail there. Okay, another 
I think, a very significant quote. It comes off kind of passing, but it's mm-hmm. very significant. So Keiko says, what if the war heats up again at the station and it isn't safe anymore? And then O'Brien says, I'll put in for a transfer. I never want us to be apart again. Oh, there's a war going on, right? <laughs> I know. Right? Yeah. So, yeah. okay, so Cisco goes off to check out some ruins, destroys the 30,000-year-old tablet. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's going on during the war. The chief also just says, you know what? If it just heats up again, I'll just transfer. Dude, you are like the chief engineer of the station that is at the front line of the war. You can't do that unless he actually – okay, so here's the big question. Unless he actually doesn't even really care about his job. Yeah, uh, Right, right, which it seems that he right? does. But look, he's been away from them for over a year. And now he decides, yeah, I don't want to be a part again. I, uh, so much so that I will transfer my job. I, uh, first right. of all, you're needed. Second of all, I don't believe you. So, Miles, yeah, I will hold you to that. I will hold you to that promise, okay? When the war heats up, I want to see you ask for a transfer. I'll be waiting. In that picnic scene, <laughs> by the way, I love I, I love watching because, you know, it's the old adage, never work with animals or kids, and you, you got them both in this episode. I love <laughs> Yoshi just munching on grass. And like, uh-huh. and nobody cares. It's like, here, kid, this will keep you occupied while we film you for however many hours of the day. He's just, he's just pulling grass out of the garage, chewing on it. And nobody cares. That's a great little real life moment. It's lucky he didn't yank that rattlesnake's tail. I know, that could right? Have been a whole different, yeah, day, very right? different. Yeah. So I like good set design. I like with how they bring in like the architecture of this temporal portal. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I didn't like about that scene one. The chief actually used his bad shoulder to hoist that portal, like put your back into it, lad. You know, backs mm. into it, lad, and he kind of like helps mm. try and you know uh, support that. But also, did anyone take like a temporal reading of how old the structure was? Because I'm thinking that it's old, and I'm thinking that maybe you don't want to manhandle old technology like that because yeah. it might just fall apart in your hands. Yeah, could actually it make it worse. And it does make you wonder, though, like how many time portals are just laying around on different planets and how old they are. I mean, look, you got the Iconians, you got the Guardian of Forever, you got this one. They're just, you know, the universe or at least our galaxy is just lousy with godlike aliens and time portals everywhere. Right. Everywhere. Yeah. Very irresponsible. They need to put out, like, some caution tape in front of that stuff. By the way, there's a piece of equipment that they use when they're getting ready to try to beam Molly back through the portal in the first act. Looks like the control center from the TARDIS. And Very similar. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but brilliant. Brilliant. It's got to be on purpose. I mean, come on. For Doctor Who fans out there, yeah. let us know. Yeah. Do, do the email thing, do the Twitter thing, <laughs> do the Facebook thing. I thought that, that the, the look that Renee gave Kira as Oda when she said she wanted children of her own someday, I thought that was just brilliant. Oh. Just very subtle. But because he just looked like, I can't do that for you. Yeah. Well, you know, I, you know he could go scoop one out of the lake. That, you know. I mean, he, he yeah, could. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> but, but it's like it, it loses a little bit of that romantic ambiance of the moment. Yeah. Right? I'm just, you know, I'm just saying. Yeah. Uh, oh, and remember, folks. Mm-hmm. If ever you beam back your your daughter that was lost for 10 years from a portal and she materializes, frayed clothing, ragged hair equals feral, so approach cautiously. Good point. Good point. They need to put that in Starfleet 101. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to forewarn everyone here for this next piece because 
it should come with a warning. The scene should come with a warning. Mm-hmm. So Dax says in, in her quarters when she and Worf are talking about Yoshi, she says, Worf, that's very sweet, but let's face it, you're not very good with babies. And Worf says, I raised Alexander. Okay, the amount of eye roll whiplash that you'll get from that moment would cause you vertigo. So, again, just a fair warning. We watch these episodes so you don't have to. You did not. You did not, Worf, okay? That, that's just, uh, I, I, that, those are the, the, the three-word answer to your claim there. I'm sorry, your claim does not hold up to scrutiny. We're done. Good day, sir. I am a good parent. <laughs> no. I don't care what you say. <laughs> I like how Feral Molly kind of hoarded all those balls when they were throwing those balls at her. Yeah. I mean, they could have been food, they could have been fruit, but it's something that was very natural, I think, to someone who you know was alone for 10 years, mm-hmm. just like, it's mine. I'm going to put it like in this little pocket in my cave and protect it like she did with Loopy. Like she she used the balls to actually cover her doll, which was a, a kind of there was a nice little detail because yeah. like this is mine. This is my whore. This is my treasure trove. No one's taken it away from me. I, I think of all the things in this episode that we may find places to criticize. Um, I think she is excellent. And and there's a lot of details in the performance and it's little things like that that clearly they're making a point of that, that you see that she's doing. But her her movements, her vocalizations, and there's a kind of realism to her reactions, which I thought was really well done. Um, And while we're talking about that scene, uh, hey, that Galana melon, I I wanted to look that up. That is Kiwano, and that is the uh, also known as the African horned cucumber. And it is pretty cool looking. It is perfect for Star Trek. Apparently, I've never had one, or at least if I have, I can't remember it. That internal seed consistency, kind of gel-like kind of uh, kind of like a cucumber, kind of mm. like a zucchini, but also a little sweet, a little kiwi-ish. And apparently mm. the longer it ripens, it takes on a little bit of a banana flavor as well. So um, yeah, yeah. So now I'm curious to go try it. Kawano melon. Mm-hmm. I like that. I thought it looked like kind of like, it wasn't big enough to be a, I mean, it wasn't small enough to be a pomegranate, but it kind of reminded me of with a seed density in yeah. the center. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Speaking of seed density. <laughs> oh, hey. Uh, hey, King, King of yeah. transitions right there, yeah. Mm-hmm. So Worf talking to Dax about her judging his quality as a parent, you know, his his fortitude, his fertileness. Mm-hmm. He said that you are judging me on my fitness as a parent. Don't deny it, Jadzia. I can see it in your eyes. I have proven myself to be a worthy husband to you, but you're not convinced I would be a good parent to your children. Dude, yeah. <laughs> Take it from Take it from, well, don't take it from me because I'm no good at this either, but take it from Barry White. Put on one of his albums. Yeah. Pour some Klingon blood wine. Dude, your your outcome of that evening would be so much better. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Right? Worf. Come on, bro. Yeah. Oh, and speaking of gungs. Yeah. Gung, gung, gung. <laughs> I, I wonder if Klingons have a, a baby's first Batlith picture album. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think that would be adorable. That would right? be. That would, so uh, the thing that didn't ring true to me about that scene, though, is, is that it, it seems like Worf would actually be totally cool with a, a toddler bumping his head during rough play. A, a, he probably did that a hundred times with Alexander. He'd be like, get up and walk it off. Crying is without honor. Like, it would be done. That would be it. <laughs> you know? <laughs> that was that it, problem solved right there. John, I, you know, we could put this whole Klingon Ridges, you know, argument to bed. You know, was it this? Was it that? It was literally letting their children, like, run around sharp things. Yeah, right. And just bumping their heads into everything and just scarring their foreheads up. And that's how they got their riches. Right, right. I think that's it. Right. Yeah. 
You know, there's that scene where where Cisco uh, says that he has to send Molly to like this Federation special center, mm-hmm. and he says that I'm sorry, Chief. I wish there was another way. Mm-hmm. You realize that this is the guy. You know, I'm going to get the emails about this, but I don't yeah, care. Yeah, whatever. This is the guy that maneuvered the Romulans into a war. He coerced people. He bribed people. He was an accessory to crimes. He admitted all of this. But there's no way that he can actually call somebody and say, can you do me a favor and not put her in jail? Yeah. Right? I mean, Odo found a way. He just hit a control pole and says, get out of here with your kid because I care about you, chief. Yeah. No wonder he wants to get another job. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm sorry, uh, Chief. Uh, that might mean that we break a rule if we uh, if we did that. So uh, you, far be it yeah. for me to break a rule. Yeah. Come Profits on. forbid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm sorry if I get a little tense about that yeah. because it's true. It that whole scene it was just like, come on, really? Yeah. You're not going to bend the rules for the chief yeah. who needs your help, clearly. Exactly. But, but Odo did, and mm-hmm. he just pushed an airlock button, let him go. He doesn't care about the ramifications. This is his friend. And you know what? I, here's where I like, because it is definitely an arguable point about the acceleration of Odo and Kira's relationship. I totally get that. I mean, it, it plays well for some people. It doesn't for others. But whatever we're here, what's nice is the payoff in this softening of Odo and, and mm-hmm. him actually valuing these friendships more. So I appreciated that scene now more than I would have, you know, however many episodes or months before, where it may have come across as a little forced, a little stilted. In this, I was like, yeah, that's Odo now. He would do that. That was my favorite scene this episode. Mm-hmm. I was literally like fist pumping the air. Yes. And, and then I kind of, you know, I... I I collected myself and then got back to the critical thinking of this, and I can't reconcile how he's going to get all the paperwork squared away. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, you know, hey, if he learns anything from Captain Cisco, it's that you can just create another lie to cover for the lie. Yeah, yeah you know, mm-hmm. lead by example. Yeah. When Feral Molly sees younger Molly and holds her hand and pushes her through the doorway, so my time cop, the movie Time Cop, mm. Radar went way off because there's this whole thing in certain temporal field belief systems in science fiction where the same matter can't occupy the same space. That's time cop. Right. But then this is all kind of timey-wimey stuff anyway, so I don't care. I give it a pass. But it did go. I was like, you can't do that. You can't touch her yeah. or else we'll turn to this gelatinous thing. <laughs> yes. Well, if we but, learn you know, anything from JCVD, it's that. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. But then again, you know, this is this is the series where you just ask an orb for help and it will change time and everything is good. Oh, right. right. Oh, see that that's how you clean it all up. You, you just <laughs> yeah, so you, you, you go into the wormhole. It is like, uh, hey, come on, guys. Uh, let, let's fix this one. OK, you, you did wipe yeah. out a Dominion invasion fleet. Uh, let's just fix this for the chief, okay? Because right. the yeah. chief the chief is going to need some fixing here because I have to wonder. Now, look, I'm just going to go ahead and assume that Keiko doesn't have to face any of this. But the chief, what is his experience when he gets back to the station? Um, uh, uh, chief, let me introduce you. Here's uh, the guy that your daughter stabbed. Uh, so now you get to deal with him. Oh, oh, uh, chief, here's the security guard that you knocked out. Uh, so you guys got to know each other. Oh, oh, hey, and uh, Chief, also remember, here's Captain Cisco to talk to you about that runabout that you stole. I, I just, I don't have a good feeling about that hearing, but, you know, maybe I'll be surprised. I'm actually glad you brought up this as kind of like a checklist of things that happened to the Chief, mm-hmm. 
because it will come back significantly in my wrap-up. Okay, good, good. I really, really like the drawing at the end. You know, the one that Julian said, you know, don't push Molly too hard, and you got to see the chief and and Keiko and and Yoshi like as trees and suns and clouds and things like that. Mm -hmm. It was a really nice touch because Molly, when she returned to a little girl state, she kind of drew that similar tree. Yeah, yeah. But... But... Here's another one of my issues with the episode. It's kind of like, now this is the back to the future part that I have a problem with. If feral Molly didn't exist, allowing younger Molly to exist, anything that feral Molly did would be eliminated from the timeline. Like stabbing the person in quirks. Right. Like drawing the picture that the chief probably has up in his room somewhere right. because that older Molly ceased to be as that temporal portal corrected the timeline, returning Molly back to her original state. So is it back to the future or is it time cop? Is it Dr. Who? What are we dealing with here temporally? I have no idea. It's all of the above and none of the above. That, that's, that's the only answer we can settle on. Who looked after Chester while everyone was gone? Did Worf remember to tell him he's a nice cat and a pretty cat? We'll get right back to Time's Orphan after a word from this week's sponsors. Hey, it can't be stressed enough how important internet privacy is. It's important to me and Norman. It's important, presumably, to all of you. So think about it this way. Um, Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like taking a call on a train or a bus on speaker for everyone to hear. Oh, we love that, right? <laughs> right? Well, yeah. See, I don't want to be that person. I don't think you want to be that person. I don't think anybody within the sound of my voice wants to be that person. But there it is, all of your personal detail, uh, the contents of that conversation there being shared to everybody. But using the internet without ExpressVPN is exactly like that. So why in the world does everyone need a VPN? Well, it's exactly for reasons like that. Your ISP, uh, Internet Service Provider, so whatever it is you use, you know, Comcast, Verizon, Spectrum, whatever, they know every single website that you visit. All of them. Let me stress that. All of them. And ISPs can then turn around and sell that information to ad companies and tech giants and anybody else who wants it who then can use that data to target you. That hardly sounds fair, does it? I mean, you're absolutely right, John. I mean, it's no coincidence that as you continue to go through this journey of using the internet and looking at different websites, there's a correlation with your activity and the amount of ads, especially target-specific ads that are flooding your emails or flooding your the social media destinations that you choose to visit. That's what these things do. That's what these data mining programs and bots do. So why wouldn't you want to protect yourself with a program that allows you to be safe and secure and allows you to navigate the internet at ease? That's what ExpressVPN does. It creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so people can't peep on your online activity. No one wants to get peeped on, especially when you know that you're not 
being peeped. Yeah, I on. certainly don't want that. No peeping, please. Yeah. Yes, it's the peep-free yeah. zone. So the best thing about this is that once you install ExpressVPN, either on your home computer or any of your mobile devices, you just fire up their app and click one button, and that's it. It connects automatically. It shows you and tells you that you are protected and in the very best server for that protection closest to your zip code, which just means it's regional and you're protected with the fastest ping possible. So it's rated number one by CNET, Wired, and The Verge. It works on phones, laptops, even your routers. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can also be protected too. And that's the great thing about Absolutely. This. So the things that we love about ExpressVPN, first and foremost, it is easy to use and it protects our information. And I, those two hand in hand couldn't be better for us or for you. So listen, secure your online activity by visiting expressvpn.com slash mission log today. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log and you can get an extra three months for free. ExpressVPN.com slash mission log. Hey, uh, Norman, I've mentioned it before on the show and uh, to you in passing. And, well, you know, anybody who will listen to me, uh, sometimes I work in bed. Uh, very often I sleep in bed. I also, let's see, I watch stuff in bed. Ooh, ooh, I read stuff in bed. Let's face it, we all and myself included in that, uh, we spend an awful lot of time in bed. And maybe the relaxation you need isn't as good as it could be because you're on a busted old mattress. You know, the kind where it's got the sagging spot in the middle or the springs are poking out. You know that one. I know that one. We all know that one. Well, Helix Sleep is here to make all that go away and make it better. I've talked about my experience on a Helix Sleep mattress, and now Norman has one too. I did exactly what what we discussed in these ads. I did exactly what we've described to all of our customers to do when they're looking for a new mattress. So Carol and I, we were sleeping on a mattress that just, well, what's the, what's the easiest way to put it? Sucked. <laughs> just sucked. That, that, that's an industry term. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It was, it was ruining our sleep patterns. We were waking up achy. We were waking up cranky. It was just a, not a good experience. And- I took the sleep quiz, and she actually took the sleep quiz as well. And we went to helixsleep.com slash mission log because I want to support our ads as all of our customers support our ads. And we did the two-minute sleep quiz, and it definitely did match the mattress to our body type and sleep style and sleep preferences because it asks you a myriad of questions. So everyone knows that your mattress will be designed in a unique way to you. And Helix knows that too, thanks to the sleep quiz. They have different mattresses and different firmnesses and models to choose from. They have soft and medium and firm. And here's the best thing. Their mattresses are very cool to sleep on. Like cool as in the aesthetic sense and cool at literally in, in the temperature sense. Because those mattresses can absorb a lot of body heat, which makes it really uncomfortable to sleep on. But the Helix mattresses are great at dissipating heat. So I was matched with the Dusk. Ooh. The Dusk Mattress. Yeah. Because, see, Carol sleeps on her side. I sleep on my stomach. So the, the aggregate of those two was the Dusk Mattress. We got it in a queen-size bed. Here's the coolest mm -hmm. thing. It arrived on time. It arrived in this rather tall, cylindrical kind of box. And inside it was vacuum-sealed and well, very well-protected, wrapped in like a billion layers of cellophane. And as soon as I all unwrapped that, I 
cracked the 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 vacuum ceiling yeah. and Oh, it's the most it's satisfying, satisfying experience it, ever. It's like you got a mattress, but you got a show along with it. <laughs> it's so <Exactly>. nice. <laughs> Took that off, let the mattress just rise and rise and take shape and fill the room and cure. Yeah. Amazing experience, amazing shipping, amazingly easy to install. So if you are looking for a mattress... Uh, you, you heard what to do. You take the quiz. You order the mattress that you're matched to. You do that all over at helixsleep.com slash mission log, and the mattress comes right to your door shipped for free. You don't have to go to the mattress store again. Look at what we just saved you, that, that pain and drudgery. Helix is awesome, but you don't need to take our word for it. Helix, although you just did, Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazines. Go to helixsleep.com slash mission log, take that two-minute sleep quiz, and they'll match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you will. And even better, Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattresses, orders, and two free pillows, which are super comfortable also, by the way for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash mission log. All right, Norman, take it away. I think we've gonna, we're going to find a few things maybe to, uh, to take aim at here in our discussion of Time's Orphan. Uh, might be a little critical. Might, might, might find some things here to, uh, to celebrate with some praise. But uh, I want to know what you got first. Well, I think the first thing that kind of made me kind of sit up and say, huh, you know, that those questions that scratch your brain and say, like, why did they choose Molly instead of, say, Kiryoshi? Because, oh. you know, Molly's eight years old, yeah. right? And she's a little bit more, like, you know, mentally and educationally more well-formed, has a little bit more connection with her parents. I think that in 10 years she would have remembered her parents mm-hmm. a little bit more. I think so, too. But Kiryoshi's a baby, right? So if there was a way that, say, Keiko accidentally, you know, dropped Kiryoshi or he was curious and crawled over the lip of the cave and fell into the pool while she was looking for spores or funguses, stuff that she does. Mm-hmm. I still I still feel that that would have been something a little bit more believable when, say, 10 years later, this younger version of himself and then stealing the original pitch who was raised by kind of like these agriculturalists. Yeah. yeah would have been robbed of a family that he was raised by yeah, in order to be raised by these strangers. I think that would have been much more interesting is he had somebody with some maturity who really truly had uh, a different life because when you go this route of like it was uninhabited and they had to fend for themselves, fight for themselves, well, that might have been a little harder to believe with Kiryoshi. But if you had some people there who then ingratiated him to another life, like we played out a similar plot like that on TNG to great effect. Um, we even started to play that out, remember in DS9, when Odo tries to take care of a young Jem'Hadar. And mm-hmm. um, and those I thought were were you know deeper, a little more thoughtful episodes. That ten year gap from an eight year old, I, I just I wondered if that ten years was really enough to make an eight year old lose their language capacity. I you know because Molly Molly's a bright kid, <laughs> you know Molly has a lot to say. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I was a little surprised at that choice. There, there were a lot of ways they could have gone with this episode, but. That was the first choice they had to make. Well, I think that 
we, we're trying to reconcile with the big ask here, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the big trope of it's kind of like if everyone's familiar with the Tarzan origin story or, say, Dance with, with Wolves or, or any of those tropes where a child is taken from their parents and then raised by something else, either their, their own experiences, as, as in this case with Molly, or by apes or by Indians, mm-hmm. right? Apes being Greystoke, Indians being Dances with Wolves, uh, you know, the, the female character in Dances with Wolves. They're all taken at a certain age where it, it, basically whoever, whoever is, is raising them will inform them of, of who they are, uh, what society they belong to, what cultures that they follow. But that's when they're babies, yeah. right? That makes a, a huge difference. So I don't really buy into the fact that, like someone who wants to be an exobiologist <laughs> <laughs> who can actually say the word exobiology yes. is going to lose all of that, like you said. Um, but that's, again, you know, that's just a contrivance in the story that we kind of have to accept. Yeah, I really do like the the original pitch of the story where it wasn't this feral child that they had to deal with. I, I really disagree with Ira's, uh, his choice on changing the original pitch. Me too. My impression of his objection to that original script is that it played a little too much like a teen family drama. And that might have been the problem with that script, but I don't think that that's the reason to completely throw that out. I, I think you can rewrite it in a way to, well, you could either choose to focus on Kiryoshi or you could choose to just write better dialogue if you're going that way with Molly and you are doing the, the sort of teenage angst thing. Um, but this was this was an, an interesting and odd choice. I, I want to bring it back to uh, a slightly different take on this, which is, so regardless, regardless whether it was Molly or Kiryoshi, whether they're feral or raised by, you know, a, a presumably, you know, benign or, or loving family on the other side. Are, are we really to mine some sort of ethical dilemma out of the situation in this story? Because they dramatically play it that way. They they dramatically are sort of forcing that idea on you, the audience, on us, the audience. And um, I, I, I found myself just sort of thinking that this feels like it's something that is shoehorned into the episode to make it feel like there is a greater ethical problem or question here. Um, there was a, and maybe there was a little more concern about that when we were dealing with a whole civilization as we were in Children of Time, which was an interesting episode, very good. Ep- I, I liked it quite a lot. Um, but this time around, I wasn't feeling that. I Mainly because, uh, well, maybe it's a combination of reasons. It's Miles and Keiko's daughter. So this really isn't a decision for other people to weigh in on. This is one family, one child. It was an accident that got them into this situation already. And I'm I'm not sure if you could argue that Feral Molly's life was demonstrably better than mm-hmm. Molly living with Keiko and Miles. So, you know, in the greater scheme, scheme of things, you could ask, well, well, what if this is the life that Molly is supposed to have and supposed to is doing a lot of work there? But even then, 
well, we try to correct the mistakes or accidents in our lives and our families' lives whenever we can anyway. So I'm not really sold on the drama around whether or not this was a huge problem. What did you think? Because particularly those scenes with the doctors, like, well, if you take her away from here and send her back through the portal, that Molly never exists. Okay. <laughs> you know, I hate to say, I hate you to know, sound cavalier about it, but fine. No, but I think the reason why you do and the reason why I do, and I think that a reason why a majority of the people that watch this episode will or have felt about it in the same way is because they never really, they haven't developed the O'Brien's family in, in, in such a way that they've developed other relationships in the show. Bingo. Like you bingo, said, bingo. we have not seen Rosalind Chow on the series since season five, which means that we haven't seen Molly on the series since season five. Yeah. Which means that we haven't seen Kiryoshi on the series since season five. How are we supposed to care about characters when they're so sparsely used? And why would we care about what happens to them when we have no attachment to them as characters? Deep Space Nine, I've said this ever since that I started working for Mission Log. I said that it has probably the best, deepest bench of secondary characters in any Star Trek series that I have seen so Mm -hmm. far. And that is absolutely 100% true. I will stand by that with the exception of a very important character's family. Yeah. That's the O'Briens, right? So they don't develop the O'Briens, they d- and, which means that we don't care about them. We don't have the invo- emotional investment that we have with, say, Jake and Benjamin, or even Quark, Rom, and Nog. Yes. Right? Yes. Because they've had more episodes to let us develop that connection with those characters, those characters' families, and gives us agency in our emotional attachments to them. So how are we supposed to make an emotional connection with Molly, younger Molly or feral Molly, since we really don't care about her? Yeah. Norman, is that a – I'm sorry, uh, right behind you. Is that a soapbox over there? Because could you just – could you slide that over here? Could you slide that over here to me real quick? Could you just, if you could just share that, if you could just slide that soapbox over here, I'm going to, uh, okay, there we go. Let me just, let me just put my name on it. Yeah. Where's my, uh, okay. Where's, where's my big, my brother tape machine? Okay, there we go. All right. So yeah. thank you. All right. Okay. So I, I'm going to just going to borrow that from you here for a moment and, and just say, yes, we, we have to tie This is the 800 pound gorilla, the elephant in the room. The problem with all of this is we have to talk about the writing for Keiko. And mm-hmm. this is what drives me insane. Uh, and it goes to the very top of the episode. The very top <laughs> is her ribbing Miles because he's gotten fatter over time. And the wait, wait a minute, let me add it up in the year plus, year and a half since she's seen him. And for some reason, as you pointed out, she has disdain over Chester because. Why? Because a cat once killed one of her bonsai trees? I mean, this is literally like his only friend other than Dr. Bashir, who he can't hang out with all the time because they both have to work. Like, this is the thing that keeps him occupied since you've been away for a year and a half. And you're going to talk smack about the cat? I'm sorry. But this, this is the problem with Miles and Keiko overall. And before we get maybe some emails or comments that misunderstand why I think this is, it's not that I don't care for relationships on Star Trek. I think they have the potential to be very well done. 
you just said it, that, you know, we have, particularly in that, that secondary character lineup on DS9, some fantastic work. I would even say that uh, Beverly Crusher and Wesley Crusher, that is a more functional, better written family relationship, even though we don't get a lot out of that in retrospect. And it's not, you know, it's not because I just patently dislike Miles and Keiko. There's potential there. The problem is that it's a joke at this point because the writers have no idea how to write for these two. And you can tell because their first solution is just to get rid of her for long stretches of time, inappropriately long stretches of time. So apparently they don't have to think too hard about her in the writer's room. That's the only thing that I can piece together from that. And then their next solution is to fall back on every terrible cliche they can find. It's lazy writing, and nobody looks good with it. I I mean, literally, we are 90 seconds into the episode, and it's Keiko taking a shot at Miles and complaining about Chester, and that is infuriating to me because you, you don't see... Like, they're trying to do this writer's shorthand. Look how close they are. They're bickering about things. No, it, it comes across as shallow and petty, and it makes me not care about their relationship. I, I just, you know, I, I want my Star Trek to aim higher. Give us adults who act like adults, not like a sitcom that you saw 20 years ago. They accomplish that in so many other ways. You just called them out on the places they accomplished that. But look, at this point, Miles had a better, deeper, more believable relationship with Liam Bilby. And we got that in one episode. No, that's true. Uh, You know, let's let's put it on the scales Mm -hmm. here. Which, what relationship are you a little bit more invested in? Goldicott and Zial? Mm -hmm. Or Miles and Keiko? Goldicott and Zial by far. Because why? Because they spend time developing those characters. They spend time allowing us access to the emotional content of their motivations. Mm -hmm. That's what writing does. That's what really good writing does. And in the end, if you don't care about your main characters, then I don't care how good the visitor is written. If you don't care about Jake and if you don't care about Cisco in that episode or prior to that, you won't care about that episode. That episode would just fall flat on the page. Yeah. It's because of the relationship prior to that. So if they wrote Keiko and Miles and this episode in this way, even though that we have problem with the time travel and things of that nature, if they wrote their relationship to the point where we would be devastated at the end of them having to make that choice, this could have been Miles and Keiko's version of the visitor. At that Yes, right? yes. I, I had that exact same thing in mind, 100%. This was the missed opportunity to give them their version of the visitor. But let's get, let's get to something far more significant in this okay. episode. Let's talk about Worf as a father. Oh. <laughs> or a father-to-be. <laughs> or a father, a father re, in, in, in training or retraining. Okay. I actually really loved this B plot more than the A plot. Yeah. I really did. Yeah. I really did. Because... Worf is, I don't want to speak out of turn. I'm not a parent. I'll get to that later. But I do believe that, 
especially when I see it in grandparents. Grandparents love their grandchildren probably more than their original their, their original children than their children right. sometimes because I always feel that grandparents are overcompensating for the mistakes that they made with their own yeah. children. I think Worf here is beating himself up so much about what happened to Yoshi because of all the mistakes that he made with Alexander. He's trying to he's trying to turn his his whole personality into something better. Like he feels responsible for an accident that happens to a myriad of children. Like Dr. Bashir said, you know, like this happens to kids all the time. They run into furniture, they get hurt. We have 24th century medicine. We can heal anything. Don't worry about it. But Worf takes that personally. He's like, no, I failed him. And I'm, I, I, wanna, I wanna bring a personal story mm -hmm. to this. Everyone knows here that has been listening to the show for a while that I have two rabbits. I let, accidentally let one of my rabbits, my first rabbit, Pippin, uh, I let her out of her cage. She escaped out of her cage. And then I heard this scream from a different room when I was cooking mm. dinner. I came back. She was very, very injured mm. from the second rabbit because that's what rabbits do. I went into shock. Like, I didn't know what to do. I mean, her face was severely injured. I found the hospital. I drove down the 22. And you know how the 22 can be in Southern California. I drove down the 22 at like 110 miles an hour. You can't arrest me in the hospital a long time. <laughs> But I, you know, I called Carol and I was devastated. I said, I failed her. I failed my baby girl. I failed. Yeah. This is a rabbit. Yeah, right. You know, right. This is a right. pet. But the emotion is, but the, the emotion felt, is But genuine. the emotion yeah, is yeah. there. Yeah. And because she was injured, I felt like I, I objectively 100% and totally failed her. Yeah. From, from being harmed, yeah. you know, from harm. And I, I saw that in Wharf. I'm like. Worf feels that way because he wants to be better. He wants to be a better father than he was to Alexander. He wants whatever child that they are going to have together, he and Dax, to have a better quality of life than he provided to, that he didn't provide to his son. Yeah. And I found that incredibly endearing. Now, it was clunky as a story narrative, but I think it was right in the intention. Well, yeah, and that's honestly where I come to this episode, and I, I feel like I just I want to cut it a lot of slack um, because the, there was an interesting theme here, and that is at least the idea of looking at parents who carry some guilt and are trying to work through that because of decisions they've made that might have affected their child. You know, they, they weren't there at the right time. They didn't do the right thing. How do they try to make amends for that and correct their own behavior going forward? Now, maybe unlike you, I, I'm not going to cut Worf as much slack because I feel like what he did to Alexander is nigh unforgivable. But, but I, even as I had that thought pop into my head, that Alexander we ended up with in in his last and final appearance here in DS9 was great. I love that Alexander. It just took us so totally. damn long to get there. And it was no thanks really to Worf for getting us there. But but it, it, it worked out. We we got there, you know. But what I really love is I love the way that Dax handles Worf and the way that he learns to forgive himself about Yoshi and realize, like, accept this little bond that he had. So this is a change in Worf, and maybe he is seeing like, oh, I made the mistake earlier. I didn't do everything that I could. Now things are different. The relationship is different. I'm at a different place in my life. That This could be this really interesting turning point for Worf. 
and it's parallel to the story of the O'Briens, who, look, I, I will give them credit for this because I, I just went off about how bad the writing is for Keiko and Miles pretty much any time they're together. What I was happy about, <laughs> I mean, really, what I was happy about is that at least in this episode, they have their concerns, but they work together to try to solve the problem. There isn't blaming or yeah. anger. There, there aren't those kind of cliches. Cliches for a reason, because there is some reality to it, but there is a shared concern. There's a shared sadness. There, there's always that lingering, what if, I, you know, they're playing that out in one way while Worf is playing it out in another way. So these two stories as A and B parallel each other very nicely, different stakes, different places in their lives. Uh, but that is where I, I found this episode to be very engaging and very thoughtful. My question about Chester raises the terrifying possibility that Worf told Yoshi that he's a nice baby and a pretty baby. All right, we just barely made it, Norman. You went through the portal. You came back feral. I sent you right back through. And look, we got you aged just a few seconds from our last segment. So I'm glad that timing worked out. And you're here just in time to share with me and our audience what you thought of the episode, how you felt about the morals, meanings, messages, where the whole thing stands up. So I'm going to kick it to you first. Does the episode hold well, first of all, I want to let all of our listeners know that my hair looks amazing, right after coming through the portal. None of this feral hair stuff. My hair that was that, that was why I sent you back through. That was why I sent you back through because I, I couldn't take it if, if it's going to be feral haired Norman. Mm -mm. That that is not a good look on oh, you. Oh, that's our yeah. that's our album name for this episode: feral haired Norman. Feral haired Norman. That's it. Right. Yes. All right. So everybody got to work on that. I want to see album art. Okay. So take a deep breath, everyone. Okay. Does this episode hold up, quite honestly, for the most part, for me? Yes. Anti. An I, I, okay. I, you have an explanation. There. <laughs> <laughs> a, a rather long one, if you can bear with me. Okay. I can't wait. Okay. So, as to use my own past critiques as sort of, say, like a barometer or a guidepost to defend this episode, as opposed to, say, my previous issues and critiques with prior episode, this one, for me, actually does work both on paper and almost in execution from, uh, you know, in comparison to, say, Valiant or The Reckoning or Prophet and Lace, episodes that I've said in, our, in recent past uh, mission logs that these were episodes that solely worked, say, in the pitch uh, phase or the brainstorming phase and only really worked well on paper. They fell short in the execution and they were great as an idea. But Time's Orphan, for me, was so close to being a very emotionally impactful episode, but one element was really missing for me, and something that I've always praised Deep Space Nine for in episodes, even if they didn't work, and that is the strength of the acting performances that would normally save a lackluster episode from just being completely unwatchable because it was a bad idea. The acting always saved it. Now, to be honest, I found myself wanting a bit when I watched this episode for the first time, and I think it's because I really wanted to see more emotional turmoil 
from our lead characters, especially from Colm and Rosalind. Hmm. I think they should have given us far stronger performances in this episode, especially when they were saying goodbye to Molly, feral Molly. Mm -hmm. I wanted to see their hearts fully laid bare at that moment because I wanted my heart to be torn from my chest and be right there with them with tears on my knees, feeling that, that loss, you know, that, that sacrifice. And we know based on the quality of previous performances that they are both capable of far more better emotional contextual performances than we have seen in this episode. And especially with Colm, as we saw in that episode where he was contemplating suicide, that episode, his performance, Colm's performance in that episode was breathtaking. So this is where the episode loses me. I understand why, you know, why they went at the, the lengths that they did to save Molly, but I never bought into the emotional struggle of why they wanted to do it. And that's where this huge disconnect is for me in this episode. But in the end, overall, I would recommend this episode because I believe the intent of it holds up for the human elements that are at the center of Time's Orphan. And they only really gain momentum over time as your experience changes, as your perspective changes. I don't know how I would have reacted to this episode in 1998, but I probably would have picked apart the easy low-hanging fruit to be able to snipe at time travel, the problems that this episode is rife with when it comes to time travel. But the thing is, is that that's not it for me. That's not what Star Trek is about. Star Trek is about trying to find those emotional beats that you could connect with to find character growth, to find how those experiences inform you as a person. And for me, that is where this episode succeeds, even if you, even if you have to work a little bit harder to see it. But it's the big question, the big question. What if you get a second chance? The even bigger question is, what if you get a third chance? And what do you do with that? But I will get into those thoughts a little bit later on in morals and meanings and messages. I hand my soapbox back to you, John. <laughs> okay. Well, see, that's very interesting because I, I hear what you're saying, and, and I agree with you in principle that the strengths of this episode are about that emotional human core. But I think perceptually, you and I are— our experience is something different with this episode. Those moments worked for you. Those moments didn't work for me because I feel so detached from the Miles and Keiko relationship. Mm -hmm. So all that stuff that you just mentioned is exactly what I want out of this episode, but I feel like they're preventing me from getting that out of this episode. But uh, let me talk about the things that I like first. Um, Look, Worf is a terrible father no matter how you slice it. But, but, but. <laughs> how dare you? He, yeah, <laughs> but he and Dax had the best moments out of this episode, hands down, hands down. They're both wonderful in this. And the little moments that they had, and, and what is really, if you add it up, not a lot of screen time because most of the, you know, the, the majority is for the A plot here. They get across a lot in those few moments that they do have. I actually, I like, you know, you talked about sort of your detachment from the sci-fi timey-wimey stuff in this, but I like the fact 
that we're doing an episode that almost could be a throwback to just some purely weird sci-fi concept that you could have done on TOS or TNG. The problem is that at least, you know, in the last half of season six of DS9, it has just been a wildly inconsistent mess for a series that takes its arc very seriously and its character development very seriously. We've had this run of episodes that just feels like they were dredging up the abandoned episodes that nobody had a really good grasp of in the first place. And it's jarring to be so completely removed from the overall arcs that we've had. And look, it's not the worst idea to break it up some, do something a little bit different. But these last several episodes have just been all over the map. I think the greatest sin of this episode is squandering the very few minutes that we have with the O'Brien family. You know, we were introduced to Keiko in TNG, and this has been a relationship years in the making, and yet you add it up, and it really is just minutes. And it's shocking that they couldn't figure out something better to do with the dynamic between her and Miles. It it feels like the the plot here feels like a manufactured drama rather than something that we're invested in. That that goes back to what I was saying to you, Norm, about my lack of emotional involvement here. And yes, look, I get it. All of the drama of Star Trek is manufactured drama. But this is different. At least it struck me different. We have to earn Um, it. Even if it's manufactured, you have to earn it. You do. You emotionally have to earn it. You have to be there with those characters. And here was the other thing that that felt very strange. And I wonder, I'm so glad that you brought this up right at the top, you know, the the what ifs here. What if they made it about Kira Yoshi? What if it was Molly but raised by people of some sort rather than totally feral? There are a lot of roads they could have gone down. But they went with this, with her being feral and non-communicative. And I talked about how in Wrongs Darker Than Death or Night, one of the big problems for me was that I felt it was needlessly cruel to Kira, forcing her to go through all of this stuff, to live those moments. And I felt like this episode bordered on the same thing. It was cruel to Molly, which in turn felt cruel to Miles and Keiko. And I I have a real issue with that. Now, the most interesting thing is the the reconnection of the family, the emotional bonds of the family. But the way this plot goes, she is psychologically under duress. She gets shot with a phaser. She gets thrown in the brig. She's sedated being dragged through the halls of DS9. And all of that, just uh, particularly rewatch after rewatch, made me feel very uncomfortable for what we were going through with her when really the heart, the core of this story is about this family bond. What what does a family do for each other? Mm-hmm. But I feel like that gets lost in the plot mechanics of this story. So at the end of the day, I can't recommend it. I feel like it's not a totally irredeemable episode because I, I think where it hits its best notes, particularly with Dax and Worf, they're great moments, but I I feel like this is not one that I 
want to watch again, at least not anytime soon. So, uh, but let's let's talk about morals, meanings, messages here, because I'm not seeing this as a strong moral meaning ep- message episode. I'm seeing it as something else. But you you tell me what you got from this. Well, before we jump into that, I wanted to ask you mm-hmm. because we have seen a certain trend uh, since in the pale moonlight. Why do you think that is? Do you think the in the pale moonlight was so well written, even if we disagree? with in mm-hmm. the pale moonlight you know yeah it was so well done it was so strong the yeah it's a, a dramatic it, high point for the series and anybody who sent us yeah. <laughs> nasty messages about it you have to understand we both really like the episode we question where it lands with the statement mm-hmm. but there you go yeah but they that was such a high but that was the top of the bell curve yeah that are we judging episodes against the quality of that particular episode fairly or unfairly i you know what okay that that's a legitimate question if you had taken this same plot and you had parked it back in you know an earlier season of ds9 where we weren't so invested in the dominion war we weren't so invested in all the politics of uh, of that world um it might have played better but i still think once you introduce this idea of the feral child who is punished mm-hmm. throughout the episode, I, I still think I would have a problem with it. Um, you know, the the issue with In the Pale Moonlight so far, you know, it, it, it's just that we did have this high watermark for the drama of the series, but now we haven't really dealt with any sort of consequence. Exactly. After that. Exactly. And, that, yeah. Yes. So so even in an episode, even if you're going to take a departure, which is fine, they, they can't all just be the same story over and over again. Even if you're going to take a departure, I still need to understand that there is some lingering uh, uh, acknowledgement of what we've just been through. I mean, aside from a throwaway line yeah. where, you know, the Chief's like, if the war heats up again, I'm going to put in for a transfer. That's not serialization. That, no, no, that that is not good enough at all. And and look, we made light of it in uh, segment two of this podcast, the idea that, well, the chief basically could get away with anything because now he's got a captain who bald-faced lied and covered his tracks. So where where is the principal left anymore? That's That's gone out the airlock. Right. You know, but but that's the kind of thing where you just you almost want that moment with Cisco. It's sort of the the epilogue to this, where Cisco's got to acknowledge, like, yeah, I, I really can't do anything with you because uh, it's complicated, <laughs> and it goes away. You know, yeah, yeah. So I, I think, you know, there are plenty of other ways to approach doing this episode. I, I don't think the concept is bad at all. I think it's a very interesting concept. I think it's a, you know, a kind of high-minded sci-fi what-if, and that's cool. It is very much a throwback to an earlier type of Star Trek storytelling. Mm-hmm. But what they chose to do with it and who they chose to do it with, I, I think, weakens any sort of uh, better outcome they could have here. Yeah, that's fair to say. Yeah, I think that uh, within seasons one, two, or three, you know, where this high mm-hmm. serialization, quote mm-hmm. unquote, high serialization of this series is supposed to be taking place, it is very, uh, it, it's it's very askew of, of that particular direction. But yeah, 
that's yeah. for, that's for a completely separate yeah. discussion. Uh, morals, <laughs> meanings, and messages. Okay, so there's an old saying: you can't understand because you're not a parent. <laughs> now, how many times have we heard that before when it comes to yeah. uh, certain comments we've made, or when we're looking at uh, parents and children arguing in public, struggling with their children? things of that nature. But I'm looking at it deeper than that in this episode. I'm looking at it at the sacrifices of parents and what they wouldn't do or risk for their children. So that's that's where this episode lands with mm-hmm. me. So bear with me because this is one of Norm's grand soliloquies because I feel very strongly about this. Can't wait. Okay, so yeah, you can't understand because you aren't a parent. To that I say, what a load of crap. <laughs> but. Yeah, I, I, I got to slide to the soapbox back. Right. So, yeah, there you go. But that mm-hmm. was me when this episode was released in 1998. When I was 26 mm-hmm. years old, I was more like Quark than, say, Cisco or Miles, especially in this episode or maybe even Worf. I wasn't a parent. I was 26 years old. I only cared for myself, right? I only cared for my smear of influence, that which helped shape my life. I was only, I was only caring about what I could get out of whatever I could eke out from my meager existence at the time. Mm-hmm. I cared for me and me alone because that was the fact. And I think that that's what a lot of people at that age also are about. I, period, was period, alone, period. Mm-hmm. And it's easier to be selfish when you're alone because all you have to do is focus on yourself, your needs, your comfort, your desires, your life. There's nothing wrong with that. But you're not the only life that walks this planet. And in the course of time, which is the great teacher with the experience that you have over the course of the ups and downs that you have with life, you start seeing and observing the struggle of humanity as a whole. And especially those moments where you see and reflect on those parents having those struggles with children that used to incite you before to that, mm-hmm. to where I said that was crap, not understanding being a parent, being able to observe this, this dynamic from afar. My sister has children. My best friends have children. They're going through teenage drama. They're going through trying to afford putting them through college. They're trying to feed their families. Those are great sacrifices that, that I've accepted in their lives as raising children. And I see that parents, they sacrifice so much in so many different ways because of that truth, truth of the axiom so that they can have a better life than they had. Right. So what does that mean to someone like me watching this episode still without children, still only need to sacrifice very little in my life because all I have to do is worry about me, maybe Carol, maybe mm-hmm. my rabbits and cats. I have no children. I only have to make it to tomorrow. I only have to be responsible for a very little in my life. But that's where I now understand how supernaturally superhuman it is to be a parent because they place their own wants and desires so far behind the wants and desires of their own children 
because they want to extend that happiness into that they had in their lives into their children's lives. I'm not saying that this happens for every single relationship between parents and children. I'm trying to generalize this and seeing this in the context of the O'Briens. By and large, children are the truest extension of their parents. They're these links in the chains of immortality, not just for themselves, but for the human race. And this is why I now understand why parents choose to make sacrifices that they do to ensure the happiness and the safety of their children. This is what Miles and Keiko chose to do to return Molly and to sacrifice having her in their physical life so that she would be happy elsewhere. It's because it's a direct reflection of their own moral compass. It's a reflection of who they are a reflection of their responsibility and their obligation so that their children will never be wanting in life. They will never be wanting for happiness, for food, for comfort, for shelter, for love. That's what they're doing at the end of this episode. Now, as clumsily as this episode was created, this was the true intent that I saw. So in that saying where you don't understand, you don't have children, that it's more in the context of how it's being said than an excuse of why it's being said. It's a reality and a statement that parents need to wield because there's no way in that moment that they can explain the complexity of any given situation or struggle at that time between a parent and a child to an outside observer. And understanding that, trying to come to terms with that, it's why I think that there is something salvageable about this episode if we were just given a little bit more than they offered us. It, see, I, I think that's where I am, which is that I'm looking for that thing that is salvageable. And it, it's just on the other side of being salvageable. You know, um, I, I told you before we did this that I didn't really find a moral meaning or message here, but I do think that this uh, this story does a decent job of what you just uh, very eloquently put. It is a rumination about parenthood and maturity and this emotional bond that parents have with their children. There is the very obvious uh, step that you know, the O'Briens go through here that they would do anything for their daughter to try to maintain and, and recreate that bond once it's gone. I think that's understandable, that's admirable. And there, there's something beautiful about that when it's played well. And, and again, we've argued here that this story is not particularly played well. But I think the other important part of this story that is very well reflected in both is this theme of this rumination on forgiveness for the mistakes that are made, for not knowing all the answers all the time, and even the best intentions of what parents can do for their children sometimes don't have the intended or best results. But that's simply an unknown, and parents can only do what it is that they feel in the moment is the right thing to do. Now, 
Fortunately, I don't want any parents who have been faced with a time travel dilemma with their son or daughter who has gone through a portal and emerged 10 years later as a, you know, feral uh, animal-like child. That's okay. That's not something that they have to deal with. (laughs) (laughs) But but it, it is nice to see whether it's on the larger scale with Miles and Keiko or on a smaller scale with Worf and Dax, this idea of commitment and forgiveness within these families and that's what allows them to go forward mission log is produced by roddenberry entertainment executive producer rod roddenberry our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com if you would like to support mission log directly you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log and for more star trek news and discussion be sure to visit trekmovie.com On the next mission log, the sound of her voice. Some of the music for mission log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Adam Brusky, Homer Frizzell, Mike Richards, and Mike Shabel. I know how to find out who looked after Chester. Wait to see if he starts saying gong gong gong. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.rottenberry.com.